Welcome to the Choosing to Create podcast, where we explore what moves us to make something, what cultivates the conditions for us to create, what sparks us to dream of a new kind of world, and then create what we want to see in it. We'll have conversations with artists and activists, cultural workers and change makers who are deeply committed to making an impact in the world. Join us as we examine the intersections of art, awareness, and activism, and look at how these threads weave themselves together to influence what we create and offer to the world. Kate Hatch is a true polymath who really dislikes being asked what she does because she's never done or been just one thing. As a multi-genre writer, mixed media artist, Buddhist chaplain, philosopher, and community organizer. Kate's unique identity as a queer, disabled, racialized white Canadian with Métis, British, and French colonialist ancestry informs their worldview and work. Their current focus is on a memoir, a mixed media art embroidery collection titled Sacred Love, Sacred Lives, and Tonka art, a form of Tibetan Buddhist art and painting where sacred images are depicted. One of Kate's current Tonka projects is an ambitious commission to create an image of the thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. Join us as we explore Kate's journey in the realms of art, contemplative practice, and social justice. I'm your host, Desiree Aspiras, and this is the Choosing to Create podcast. So yeah, welcome. Let's dive in. Yeah, do it. Go for it. You've mentioned or I've read about how you created art as a child and you would get some inspiration looking through art books that were in your home. And once I saw that, the first question that kind of came up was, what was it like growing up for you in terms of creativity? It sounds like there were at least some pieces of it there. How was it? Was it a place where creativity was cultivated and valued? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, this is such a good question. I love this question. Yay. <laughs> this is like, this is a question I would prefer people to ask me instead of what do you do? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the creativity of your childhood. Both my parents are artists in their own ways. And it's funny because growing up, my mom always said that she wasn't an artist, which what my mom meant by that is she doesn't draw, Mm. but my mom does ceramics. Mm -hmm. She taught me how to do an eye. She taught me how to make an eye look like an eye. So she's very good at like how to get the light glinting off of it and get the proportions correct and all of that. So it's, it's kind of funny when I was like, oh, I'm not an artist. She's also a quilter. Wow. She's a scrapbooker. She has a real good eye for composition and she can do the mathematical art. So like she's mm. so good at quilting because she likes math. And then my dad is, he was a photographer. He's a baker. And I think the way that my dad bakes is art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And he makes model airplanes and he does woodworking. So I grew up in a household where there was lots of furniture that my dad had made and he spent time like really designing it. He also has made just wonderful wooden boxes for people of all different kinds, like jewelry boxes and boxes for knickknacks and stuff. And Mm -hmm. he gets 
he gets quite into it. And then also drawing was hugely encouraged. So yeah, my household was a very creative one. We didn't have a television. We didn't have a television until I was 12. Amazing. And so my life was full of art and books and board games, <laughs> card games, <laughs> definitely lots of creativity and a lot of encouragement to have fun with it. One time we were getting ready to, my parents were going to re-wallpaper one of the walls in our house. Mm-hmm. They got us as the kids to like help with the dis- destruction, ripping it all down. And what it exposed was this kind of like pale green papery surface. Mm. And we knew that we weren't going to be able to do the wallpapering until after Christmas. So in the lead up to Christmas, my parents gave us whatever supplies we wanted and we could draw all over the wall and our friends could draw all over the wall. So and fun. we did this like, massive motif of Christmas decorations. Like my brother painted a giant chimney and I put a cat on it and a dragon because I put dragons everywhere. Amazing. <laughs> The dragon. Yeah, so it was definitely encouraged when I was a kid. Yeah, it sounds like you were surrounded by it. So it's clearly been there. It was cultivated. You were surrounded by it. Is that something that was a part of what you continued to work on and practice as you grew older? Or was it something that you put down and returned to later on? No, there's never been a time when I wasn't doing art. Mm-hmm. I think my relationship to it has changed and my identity around it has changed. Because when I was a kid, it was like, yeah, that's what kids do. We do art, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then in high school, getting to work with a lot of different mediums was very much, I think I was trying to figure out what's my medium. Mm -hmm. And so then I got kind of stuck on acrylics for a really long time, which was fine. But I think like what happened for me, my evolution was that I I still thought that being an artist was being like one kind of artist. Mm -hmm. And then I, it's been pretty recent actually that I was like, wait, (laughs) all the mediums, I like them all. (laughs) And it's all art. And it's all art. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So let's dig in a little bit more into that. Actually, before we weave some threads together, another part of your your bio and experience has been the contemplative practice, the path to Buddhism. And I'm curious what drew you to that path and how you I mean, I know that's probably not a short answer and I and I love it. <laughs> it is and it isn't. What drew me to the path was I was seeing a psychologist. She was teaching me meditation. She kept on talking about Buddhism. She kept on recommending this author, Pema Chodron, to me. I was like, you should go read some of her books because a lot of the stuff you say, she would say like, I think should resonate with you. I think her way of writing would make a lot of sense to you. And I finally got around to getting a Pema book. Mm-hmm. And I read it and it was instantaneous. I was like, oh, I'm a Buddhist. So it didn't really feel so much as like I became a Buddhist as I realized I always was. There was just something in the framework that absolutely clicked and made sense to me. And I was like, oh, yes, interconnectedness. I know this. This is what I was raised on. Kind of a sense of belonging within a web of things. That was like a big part of my upbringing as well. Mm-hmm. And that came largely from my mom, who is Métis, and something that she learned from her grandmother. And it was just something that made a lot of sense. I was like, everything about Buddhism makes a lot of sense to me. It's about being within the body. It's about 
seeing ourselves as part of nature rather than separate from it. It's about having a sense that what we have is what we need. We can work with it all right here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You don't have to get anywhere. So all of that just, I was like, ah, yes, perfect. Brilliant. I found the thing. (laughs) When was that? When was the picking up of the first Pema book? It was in 2008. I can't remember exactly when in 2008, but it was in 2008. And and I will say, like, I... (laughs) I got really obsessed real fast. I went like hyper-focused, like, oh, yes, I'm going to read everything this person has ever written. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is a lot. Yeah, which is a lot. It was a good job that she'd written so much because I think it, it gave me at least five years of reading. <laughs> oh, wow. Deep dive. Really deep, deep dive. dive. Yeah, and, and that's me saying also, like, I've reread most of these books multiple times as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mentioned... It didn't really land. It just felt like, oh, this was already here. This is really resonating with me. And that you felt like that was something that you'd already been brought up with. And I just want to ask about that a little bit more in terms of what that feeling was or how that was cultivated, at least in in your home. Oh, well, this is one of those weird things because it's you've got your childhood and as a kid, there are just certain moments when you realize not everyone else's family is exactly like yours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a very universal experience of you go to someone's house and you're like, wow, you do this so differently. <laughs> yeah. This is weird. <laughs> this is weird. I was really fortunate that in the experience that I had growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in. So I grew up in an inner city neighborhood, but I didn't know it was inner city because it very small town vibes, like everybody knew everybody, everybody kind of looked out for everybody. And a lot of people had really similar worldviews to my family. So it just was like normal for me to have a relationship with the land. I'll just say that. That was just really normal growing up in this neighborhood. The elementary school I went to was a green school. It was the first green school in the city. So everything about the school culture and stuff was focused on understanding the environment around us. There's some reclaimed space in my neighborhood that used to be an oil refinery and it got cleaned up. And when I was a kid, a big part of our school curriculum was going over there and planting trees and also just spending some time there and getting instruction on what are the local animals. There's wildlife abundantly around here. And I never was taught or believed for one second that their lives weren't as absolutely as precious as mine. I never saw any animals as kind of a pest or a nuisance or like they didn't belong or shouldn't be in the environment just as much as me. And also growing up with the friends that I had in the neighborhood in the summer, we're just like, roving around little packs of feral children, basically (laughs) interacting with that environment all the time and having this sense of deep belonging in the environment. My childhood, when I think of my summer memories, it's it's like running through fields and along the riverbank playing games and finding grasshoppers and making like little grasshopper habitats and setting them free at the end of the day. Beautiful. Um, <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. I, and being able to recognize bird calls and know what a bird like what different kinds of birds are in the neighborhood and stuff like that. So all of that is just part of it. And I had a childhood where I was really in my body. My mom made a really deliberate I'm, I'm one of those very fortunate rare cases where my 
parents started to try and do something about intergenerational trauma before it came to me. So my mom was trying to fix some of the things that in her childhood had been so bad and not carry those forward. And one of the big things for my mom was making sure that both my brother and I had a really good sense that our bodies were ours and to listen to them and trust them and know how to ask for what we need and recognize what our body is asking for. So yeah, I had a good relationship, a good somatic relationship as well growing up, which my experience more so is like as an adult going out and being like, oh, wow, that's not usual. <laughs> that's not common. No, and I'm really struck by not just what you mentioned of having that connection and being attuned with nature and the land and that your mom was able to cultivate that or or be present with that and to to offer that space for that is is incredible. Yeah. So that practice of just being present and attuning, it sounds like it's it's been there for a long time for you. Yeah. And I think most of what happened was I had a serious disconnect through my experience in junior high where I was really, really bullied because I was not the right kind of girl because I was performing gender incorrectly. I knew that I wasn't straight, but I still didn't have language. I really got this sense of mistrust that I wasn't okay. And that was it's really hard. Like I, I think about my childhood being almost like a utopia and it was really, really great. But three years of just relentlessly being told that you are wrong really damages the psyche. <laughs> like really, really does. So yeah, I, I stopped trusting my okayness through that experience. And it didn't help. Like I, I say this to people all the time as like, it really also doesn't help when the message that I got predominantly from adults was to just ignore people as if I could ignore the people I had to be at school with for seven, eight hours a day, five days a week, right? or just try to change yourself, change yourself and they'll stop bullying you, right? Like I never saw anyone hold anyone accountable for the way that they treated me. I just saw that it was my responsibility to make sure that they didn't treat me that way or that I didn't let it get to me, which when you're 13 and 14 and feel like you're a child. <laughs> and so you're basically being told your peers are kind of right. Actually, you do need to change and you aren't good. Right. It's like incorrectly placing the pathology on you instead of the social context. Right. And it is still a persistent problem. So I would say that the other thing about Buddhism just fitting and making sense was again, hearing a message that like, even the things that you think are messed up about yourself, even that is ground for you to work with. Even that is something for you. So it meant that there was nothing I had to slice off or separate or like put elsewhere. It was like, all of me is okay. And all of me can be here in this situation. So, And all of it is ground to yeah work with and learn from, sometimes frustratingly. <laughs> Well, I will say, actually, that was like another really interesting experience for me with Buddhism was that it took away the frustration about a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, this is something I can work with. It doesn't have to be something I have to get rid of. It's useful. It's useful. (laughs) I remember Roshi Joan once in response to a question I had. I don't remember the question now, but the response was, yeah, you just got to work it. Just this utter acceptance of yeah, and that's what we have before us to be in and to move through and to transform, make something out of, make art out of. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Which 
actually leads me to another question, which came first, the path to the Buddhist chaplaincy or the the Thangka art? Oh, the art. (laughs) So the art came first. What brought you to that kind of art? I know you mentioned painting and everything before, but was there something specific, a moment? Okay, so this is a great question. I love this because I've been sitting with this a lot lately. The first thing, I'd say there's like a few origin points. I think the first thing was that I was always a little bit wary of doing a cultural appropriation effectively, right? Like as a Buddhist, I am a deep practitioner and I'm really aware that I'm practicing. Most of my lineage is in the Nyingma and Kagyu schools in Tibetan Buddhism. But in North America, you get a mixed bag, right? It's all there. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. And so I'm always really cautious where I'm like, am I just appropriating something from an Asian culture and then performing that? Or is this actually Buddhist practice? Like, is this Dharma? Or is this just, I'm performing Japanese-ness or I'm performing Tibetan-ness or whatever, Mm -hmm. right? And so I was a little wary whenever I would see a Tanka, I would be like, that's nice, but like, that's someone else's culture and I'm not gonna muck with it. Mm -hmm. And then I got a book that was, I think it was called Meeting the Bodhisattvas. And this was mostly because I'd heard a talk that was about bodhisattvas. And I was like, oh, this whole concept of bodhisattvas sounds really interesting. I want to understand it better. And I didn't know that often the art I was seeing was, of course, depictions of bodhisattvas. <laughs> so I opened it up and I'm like, oh, that's what these are. Okay. Mm. <laughs> this was like very, very early on. I think this was, I'd been meditating. So I started meditating in 2008 and I, it was probably about 2010 that I started to get curious. And it was in 2012 when I got this book mm-hmm. and I was flipping through it and I got to Manjushri and I saw Manjushri and- I mean, that sword. <laughs> that sword. It's so cool. Also this figure that's extremely beautiful and kind of just genderless. I was like, this is just like this beautiful gender queer person wielding a flaming sword. Oh, yes. And so for those who will be listening who may have zero idea of what we're talking about, would you briefly describe the meaning of the sword and the image? Right. So, well, and this was the thing, because I didn't actually learn the imagery for a long time. I just know that I saw this picture and it was really compelling. And then once I started to actually study bodhisattvas more and learn stories, the thing about Manjushri is Manjushri's sword is just cutting through. Manjushri's sword is like, you think you know something? You don't know. You think you know now because you thought you didn't know that? No, you still don't know. (laughs) Yep. Let me slice through that a little bit more. The descriptions of the sword in sutras is like, it's a diamond blade wrapped in a cold flame that's just like, there's no ignorance that Manjushri can't cut through. And then the stories of Manjushri, like one of my favorites is from the Vimalakirti Sutra, where Vimalakirti is really sick and the Buddha is asking all these people like, how come no one's going to visit Vimalakirti in his sick bed? And all these different great lords and whatever, they're all like, "Eh, you know, last time I saw Vimalakirti, he basically schooled me. And so I don't (laughs) want to go see him because he makes me realize that I'm not really as realized I'd like to be. Mm -hmm, Right. And then Manjushri stands up and is like, Vimalakirti also schooled me and it was good for my practice. So I'll go see him. (laughs) Right. like, 
that's how I am. Like, that is how I am. It makes me weird. I realize that I'm like, oh, this is uncomfortable. I'm going to dig into it. I want more of it. I want more of it. I'm like, yeah, I want to keep cutting through the ignorance again and again and again. So yeah, that was the first image that I felt some connection with even before I'd learned any of this, done any of this study. I just which is the point of these pieces, right? The point of them is that they are such a powerful image that it speaks to something in the practitioner. And not all of them will speak to every practitioner, but the right image just it does something. And after that, I got curious about tankas and I started to look into it. I just started to like really look at the small different objects in these pictures and draw them for funsies, just like, <laughs> try and see what happens. Especially things that I really liked, you know, like if you look at a, a peony in a Tonka drawing, and I love peonies, and then like a peony in a Tonka drawing, like they're gorgeous. And I was just like, I want to draw that. Another thing is in my art, I, I love detail. So one of those art books that I grew up with, M.C. Escher. M.C. Escher books were all over my house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I love the detail. And so I never much had detail. the so much, and I never had the patience for it. So what would happen with my artwork is I would have something in my head, and I'd want to get it done. So I would simplify it and simplify it and simplify it until it was finished, and I would try to like I just rush through it. But with these pieces, even just doing the tiniest details, I was like, no, you can't, you can't rush this. You can't rush it. Then I met my wife. And she bought me a book. Basically, it's the only English resource you can get on how to draw tankas. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. And she bought it for me and it has the practice. And I was like, oh, this is like, this is a practice. There's a whole Mm. grid. And like understanding the grid is like understanding the form you take when you, when you go to meditate, right? Like how do you hold your body? So it's like, how do you prep your material? How are you going to be present with it? Understanding that what you're creating here is something that is sacred and hopefully for the right person a glimpse into that buddha nature that we all have so that was when i started to actually move into figures because i was like oh now i've got a grid mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that would have been about 2014 2015 that i started actually moving into drawing figures mm-hmm Mm-hmm. So it's it's been quite a few years since that. Now you're working on something not tiny. <laughs> not tiny at all. Can you tell me how that came to be, if that's part of the story that you would like to share, and what it is unfolding to be? Yeah. So at the end of 2022, I finished my first color tankas. I've done several figures and I've always just stuck to line drawings. And most of that was because I was still really understanding this craft and understanding this particular medium. It never felt right to color them. I don't know. I just wasn't there yet, I guess. (laughs) And then I drew over a course of two years, I drew the five Buddha families. So the five Buddha families that represent the five Buddha realms. And I drew them in non-male form because basically People are always talking about how all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have attained rainbow bodies, so they can show up in whatever form they want. So as far as I'm concerned, they're all beyond even a binary anything, like they're ultimate non-binary beings. (laughs) You're just expressing what it says. Exactly. So I was like, I'm going to draw the five Buddhas in non-male form. And I finished that 
And then I was like, I think I want to color them now. But I didn't want to color the line drawings I'd done. So what I did is I had them imaged and then I had them blown up and printed just kind of in like soft gray. So the outline was just a soft gray so that I could just color onto that. And then like another two years I spent (laughs) creating these colorful versions. And this was where my mixed media thing came in, right? Like, so these pieces are their acrylic pencil crayon, which is colored pencil for everyone who's not Canadian. (laughs) They're called pencil crayons in Canada. Mm -hmm. And different kinds of ink pens and also washi paper, which was really fun. I did, like, I cut out their robes out of, with washi paper. So I finished them towards the end of 2022 and I did like a little pre-sale to sell card sets for folks. And I wrote a little thing about practicing with each of them and what this practice had been and just reached out to my little Buddhist network and was like, here you go if anyone wants these cards. And one of my connections through Buddhist chaplaincy forwarded on to a Buddhist chaplain at Davidson University or Davidson College who bought a set. And then filled in my commission form on my website, which was wild and exciting because that's never happened before. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he basically was like, I really, really like your work. And I am this chaplain on staff Mm -hmm. and I'm able to get some funds to pay an artist. And I'd like to commission you if you'd be interested. And I was like, I am absolutely interested. (laughs) Let us discuss. He presented two options. He was like, do you want to do the Wheel of Life or do you want to do the Thousand-Armed Avalokiteshvara? (laughs) Hmm. And I was like, oh, I've thought about doing both of those many times. And they're both really complicated. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They're very elaborate pieces. One, you've got like this incredible mandala that's like everything. It's life. (laughs) Everything. Everything. And then you have a thousand armed Avalokiteshvara. I met with him, even. He's lovely. We had a chat. And basically, Avalokiteshvara is the deity that he practices with the most Mm. and has the strongest relationship. And I was like, you know what? Let's do it. (laughs) Sure. Hands. The most challenging thing to draw, I'll do a thousand of them. (laughs) Sounds fun. What a practice. What a practice. And it was great because when we met, it's like we had a good, open, honest conversation about basically it's like one of those things that I'm always navigating around around this artwork is I don't want to see it corrupted by capitalism. Very anti-capitalist. This is sacred art. This is practice art. I have a deep relationship with it. I don't want it to be exploited. And at the same time, we're talking about a lot of supplies and a lot of research and a lot of hours of labor and skill. (laughs) It's like a balancing act, right? You got to, we live under capitalism, so you have to survive. But it was great because I just opened with that and even was like, oh yeah, totally. This is obviously like, it needs to be a balance of like, you have to get paid. And this is also a practice too. So we don't want to have that kind of pressure of a deadline, which I will say that is the greatest gift that Tankas have given me is patience. Like Mm -hmm. I can't even begin to tell you how like impatient of a person I usually am. But with Tankas, I'm just like, no, it'll happen when it happens. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) no rushing it. 
<laughs> no rush, no deadline. What a gift. Yeah. Like basically I told him, I was like, I could do it in a year. And he's like, okay, I'll give you two. <laughs> that so much generosity. Right. And we're practicing together around it. So it's really lovely because I've got this relationship with him where we meet regularly and he shares things he's learning, like sutras he's come across or practices like chants and stuff. And, and then I tell him about like things I've learned about imagery. Like I'll say, I feel like I'm able to do this now because I did those five Buddhas. The five Buddhas are like the core, right? It's like the multiverse of Buddhism. (laughs) I've got it now. Mm -hmm. And so there's so much of the relationships between all the different Bodhisattvas and the way they show up in people and in our lives and practices that if you understand the five Buddhas, it's like, oh yeah, you can get acquainted with any of them now. You're good. (laughs) You've spent some time with them. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned previously that you were looking to explore both the lineage of Buddhism across cultures and also the lineage of liberation movements. And then also this question of when are all the hands? That sounds like so much to hold, just even as I'm saying that out loud. So I'm just curious as you started this, what has this experience been like to have this practice that you know is going to take the time that it's going to take? How are you holding, swirling with these intentions you have about it? And are they actually staying with you as you're sitting with it or is something else happening? That's a lot, (laughs) (laughs) right? How are you managing all of that? Well, let's just say a thousand hands helps. I was speaking with my wife about it when I was like, yeah, this whole idea of like, I really want to get the sense because I have a look at Teshvara. It's like, so you have this initial deity that came out of what we currently know as India, but like traces back to a time when it wouldn't be recognizable to us now what was there Mm -hmm. and moved into Tibet and then moved into China and Vietnam and Thailand and Japan and Korea and Everywhere this figure moved, it was adopted and then kind of absorbed things about the culture. So the depictions are so, they're just, they vary so much and they're also rich. And I wanted to, again, this is one of those things of how I work with whiteness, basically, is mm-hmm. am I ensuring that I'm doing something that like honors that I know where this came from? And this isn't mine. This is something that has been handed down by so many artists all over. And I will say one of the most amazing experiences of that for me was, so there's this grid. There's all these different grids for all of the different bodhisattvas. And I will say it was a quest to get the Avalokiteshvara grid for a thousand arms. (laughs) How large is the piece? (laughs) I know I measured it just the other day. It's 27 inches by 42 inches. It's pretty good. It's a decent size. It's Mm -hmm. a decent size. It's like the idea with the grid is that depending on the deity, there's like a universality to the form that they take. Mm -hmm. So it's like if it's a seated Buddha, they all have these proportions. It's kind of like if you if you've been trained in art where it's like you can draw like your standard human, but then you also have the heroic proportions. Right. That's (laughs) <laughs> That's what mm-hmm. this is. Like, mm-hmm. 
And the thing is, I have loads of grids. And I thought, oh, right, standing bodhisattva, that's what this is. But no, of course it isn't, because it's the thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara. So they have their own special grid. <laughs> oh, Cassie. Yeah. And a dear, dear friend of mine, one of my fellow chaplains in my cohort, actually, when I let her know that I was working on this or getting ready to be working on this, she was like, oh, do you have Robert Beer's book? Robert Beer is basically like the the English expert on Tibetan artwork. And so he has an encyclopedia of Tibetan symbols and motifs. And she said, I'll send it to you as a gift. And I was like, oh, that's really sweet of you. And then when it arrived, she threw it in this other book called The Art of Awakening which is effectively a compilation of all of the practice instructions around doing tanka as practice. Wow. Right. And guess what's in the back of it? The thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara grid. (laughs) Exactly what you needed. Exactly what I needed. So I get the grid and then I can figure out what the proportions are because it's one of those, it's a scalable thing. I figure out what the proportions are. I sketch out my grid and then I sketch out just the lightest, lightest figure. And I, for this project, I got a digital projector so that I can, hopefully this will make drawing a thousand hands a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. So after I got the, the grid set, I set up the digital projector and I've got all these other pieces that I've been looking at from all these different cultures. And I started projecting them up on what I had drawn and they all fit the same grid and they'll look completely different. And they also fit the same grid. And it was like, for anyone who's ever drawn a lineage chart where it's like, here's the Buddha and all the other, that was my lineage chart moment. Like that was me. I was like, whoo, I am the next in a line of countless beings who came before and countless beings who will come after Mm -hmm. to draw this particular bodhisattva how do I honor that like it's very present that I'm honoring it all the time I talked to my wife about I was like oh is it going to be too much to try and incorporate all the different cultural representations as well as contemporary social movements for liberation and then I was like but it's thousand arms (laughs) how could it ever be too much A thousand arms. So many arms. It's not metaphorical. You have to draw them all. Yeah. I've prepped 32. 32 is 32 (laughs) in. 32 is 32. I have the next 72 ready to go for the first first kind of array out the outside. I figured out the scaling. Amazing. I read something you'd written, which said, I want so much to see a kind of representation in Buddhism that I so often don't. And as I've been learning about your work and seeing what you have already been creating that looks different than what you've seen and what you're in the process of creating, I'm curious what that has been like for you to now bring some of this out from what you had been wanting internally and now bringing it outside beyond yourself and having it exist. Okay, so here's the other thing that's been really interesting about this experience and is true of most of the tankas I have drawn up to this point, but like particularly true of this one, (laughs) is I don't even feel like I am creating it. It's just revealing itself to me. Mm Mm-hmm. And so much of that is because I'm really aware as a queer person, when I am 
reading so much, like I'm, I'm studying a sutra or something, I'm studying some dharma. I'm just like, there's just like an inherent queerness to it. Like it is very queer. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> right. And then you look at the artwork and think, okay, so this artwork is almost all created by monks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's, Fine. And we were also talking about, we're talking about like patriarchy is baked into everything. Mm-hmm. It's always has been. And that kind of shows sometimes a lot, right? A lot. A lot. And so I think it's almost impossible, I think, for anybody, if you are, if you are a Buddhist, if this is your path and you don't see yourself reflected in the deities that you see, mm-hmm. that's not you. Mm-hmm. It's not your fault. That's not your problem. That's because art is so often like it is, it's a reflection of ourselves. It is what we put out into the world based on like our experiences and our understanding. And I don't feel like I'm creating something that shouldn't already exist and shouldn't already be obvious. That very first Manjushri I saw, gender queer as heck, right? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> And you'll, there's a lot of different depictions, and they aren't always so genderqueer as mm-hmm. that one that I first saw. Mm-hmm. And so that matters. And like, I don't know who drew that one. It doesn't, it's not credited to anybody. I don't know. It's just like a little, it's just a line drawing in a book. And all I know is that when I saw it, I was able to see something of myself in that mm-hmm. and something of my potential. And that is what these pieces are about. I think that's like another thing that I'm, really loving and I'm so grateful to my dear friend for sending me this Art of Awakening book. I like text her regularly where I'm like, you're the best. <laughs> you're so great. You have no idea how much this I is love it. I just read a passage in it that is about doing deity practice and like the mm-hmm. importance of picturing yourself as these bodhisattvas. Mm. But it's really clear in this passage where they're like, remember, you're not picturing yourself as the bodhisattva. You already are the bodhisattva. That's the other thing I'm so aware, right? As I'm drawing this, I'm thinking I am already this being and and I'm thinking everyone who looks at this, I want them to think that's me. Mm-hmm. And that is like the responsibility that you have as the artist when you're making this art. Who is it that's going to look at it? And in a way, so like I've got like the most genderqueer figure going on. I'm loving my Avalokiteshvara. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> and their face just revealed itself to me. And I was like, ooh, high femme energy. I mm. love this. <laughs> like, <laughs> Amazing. Can't wait. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of the thing is I am this being. And Mm -hmm. so is everyone who looks at this being. Mm -hmm. And I want them to be able to see themselves reflected. So, yeah. Does that answer it? (laughs) It does. And and it's it's so clear what you'd like to offer with it. And yeah, I'm just thinking about my own experience in Buddhist spaces and, and images I see. And it's not a small thing to offer either an image or a space where someone feels drawn to the Dharma path or the contemplative path for those who are not on the Dharma path, but to find something of themselves reflected in the space or in the images. So yes, there's a sense of connection or belonging at best. And you know, on the flip side of that, that someone doesn't have that feeling of, I thought I wanted to be here, but maybe this isn't the space for me. 
And so I love that you're creating these images and you're engaging in this practice. And clearly that representation is such an important piece of your work. I also wrote down and read that you said it just seems like activism and challenging tradition is a thread that's woven into your multiple projects. I just wanted you to speak on that more, if if that's something that's been intentional for you for a long time. Yeah, I'd just like to hear more about that. My mom did a good job. My mom taught me from a really early age to be super sus about authority. (laughs) 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 Which is good. And for me, it's just, it's kind of looking at things like, I think I can give you like a really solid example of listening to a talk and someone, a woman, asking the teacher about the fact that it is really patriarchal and all of these images are of men and she doesn't see herself reflected. And the teacher saying, well, you know, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, find a way to make it work because the teachings are really good. And to me, that just smacks of me as a teenager being told, if you just try to fit in better, maybe people wouldn't bully you. It fundamentally misses the reality of what we're living in. And this is another thing that I love about Buddhism is the marriage and relationship of the relative and the ultimate. So the relative experience being the only experience that we can work with, because that's what we each have. We have a relative experience. And the ultimate experience being the interconnectedness of every single relative experience. And that that it's not that it's like real or not real, but it's like there is impact. <laughs> There's actual impact there. So yeah, I am fiercely dedicated to justice and liberation. And I want liberation for all beings. And I'm just going to collect my thoughts here for a moment. <laughs> It's a lot. I get so passionate about it. And at the same time, also frustrated sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I think I would come back to teachings by Zenju Earthland Manuel, who is, I think, one of the most gifted living Dharma teachers we have right now. And so she has in her book, The Way of Tenderness, which I cannot recommend enough. I think if every single being on the planet read it, that would be great. (laughs) It's like my number one book. I recommend it to all beings. She has a whole section and she has this line that there's multiplicity in oneness. And it's a real mistake that people get into where they hear oneness or they hear the ultimate and then they like fall on that as if oneness is sameness and as if the ultimate matters more than the relative. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that binary thinking. Exactly, right? I was like, the whole point of this practice is to move beyond dualism, to move beyond that dualism and not see it that way. So like a a friend of mine, we've been having a little bit of a discussion about the sacred because of this whole thing that I read about, you are already the Bodhisattva, right? Like you Mm -hmm. are a sacred being. I was saying how any system of oppression can't be part of the sacred because it's a perversion of the sacred because mm-hmm. systems of oppression create the idea that some people are more sacred than others. And that's mm-hmm. wrong. That's rot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's why I'm always aware of like, okay, I have been conditioned and raised within a society in which whiteness is held up as superior and mm-hmm. better and more important and more valued. And I fundamentally disagree (laughs) because Mm -hmm. all beings are sacred. Therefore, I have work to do all the time about being really aware of how I believe those messages, how they are constantly bombarding me and trying to convince me 
of their rightness. And so what am I always doing to bring awareness to them, to be present with them, to acknowledge what is my personal responsibility versus what is the system and how within the system can I push against it at all times? And then what are the areas where I can just model that sacredness that a system like cis-heteronormativity, for example, doesn't believe is sacred, right? It's like trans lives are sacred. We need to protect trans people. Anybody who is attacking the fundamental existence and humanity of anyone else (laughs) is attacking the sacred and therefore also harming themselves, right? Like that's the other thing. That's where I can keep that big compassionate heart. Whereas like you do have Buddha nature and I'd rather you lean into your Buddha nature because Buddhas aren't fascists. (laughs) (laughs) I love this conversation. Thank you. (laughs) This is how my brain works. Um, Anyway, does that answer the question? (laughs) I think it answered what we needed. Let me gather myself now and look through. Well, essentially what you're sharing with me of being kind of in this constant practice of what am I doing? What am I modeling? What is mine? What is not mine? And I should put down this constant awareness. It's just highlighting for me the amount of effort this takes. And it's pointing me towards another thing that I read that you've talked about, or at least mentioned about the protector principle and being one of accountability and how we can't just, you know, wish for these, for equity and for justice, that we we have to effort fully obtain it. And it, it seems like you have obviously been in that practice. And so another thing that I'm curious about now is, and I don't know how you, you'll answer this, but has the process of your creative practice, your engaging in the the tanka art. How does that touch your Buddhist chaplain work, your consulting work, or the workout in the field? Yeah. If it does. Oh, it does. Working on a tanka is building a relationship. It's kind of weird to explain it to people who aren't Buddhists. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like, on the one hand, this is a visual representation of our own wisdom. It is our own Buddha nature, and it might just be an aspect of it, right? So like Manjushri, the aspect of cutting through ignorance. The protector ones, Takini in particular, are always very fun, but also Mahakala, right? So they're, they're definitely about accountability. You can't cut corners with the practice. You can't do the practice in a way that makes you comfortable. That's not what it's here for. <laughs> you aren't going to get comfortable in samsara. Samsara is not comfortable. That's the point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're like me being able to recognize that in myself. But they're also like, they're there. I'm like, Dakini's watching me. Am I <laughs> am I doing the right thing here? Am I really paying attention? Am I being honest with myself? Because like, I don't want her to show up in my dreams. It might be very uncomfortable. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, or however, however she's going to show up. So it is definitely always present even if I don't necessarily talk about it with the people that I'm interacting with. Mm-hmm. It's kind of this thing. It's like saying, when are all the hands? It's also sort of like, who are all the hands? What actions are all of the hands doing at any given moment? 
what are the things of like body, speech, and mind that I can be aware of? And how do I relate them to something? Like I am a really visual person. And so it's, it's kind of cool to think of, you know, if I'm in an uncomfortable position where I'm with someone else who's white and they have just said something racist, right? And I, it's really helpful to be like, I've got Manjushri's sword. It's fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll just cut through what they said. And to do it in a way that is, I love you and that's not okay. That's a reverend angel <laughs> practice. Yep. I love you and that's not okay. And also, yeah, I love you and I don't need to be near you in proximity. <laughs> I love you and I don't. Yeah. And then we've got a Prentice Hemp Hill there of boundaries or the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. It's really easy, I think, in a lot of spiritual spaces and especially in Buddhist spaces for people to get very both sidesy about stuff. And I was like, no, there are lines. There are lines and you have to understand like the fundamental difference, right? I can't remember the exact quote, but there's the James Baldwin quote of we can disagree, but if your disagreement is about my fundamental humanity, then no, right? Mm-hmm. Like just no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. When we're talking about disagreeing, we're like, well, I really, really love this flower. And you're like, well, I actually dislike that flower. I think it smells terrible. I'm like, okay, well, we can disagree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if your disagreement is, I think you're subhuman and I think you should disappear from public eye because your existence makes me uncomfortable because of something I'm not taking care of in myself. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, no. Mm." (laughs) Not so much on that one. Not so much. And like an interesting thing I've learned while I've been doing my research and study around Avalokiteshvara is learning that every single representation of Mahakala, so Mahakala, right, this this amazing wrathful deity that has like the most ferocious face. Their facial hair is fire. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Their eyes are wild. And they've got like two or four or six arms and they're holding skull cups of brains and they're wearing That's human right. skins. And every single Mahakala is a manifestation of Avalokiteshvara. Isn't that interesting? They show up however they need to show up. So a lot of these deities are different manifestations of each other in different forms. And it's, and I just, I think, oh, wow, that's interesting. One of the most wrathful protector deities, the most you are accountable to doing your work, to owning your mind, is also the embodiment. So Thousand Armed Evolokiteshvara is the embodiment of all the compassion of every Buddha Mm -hmm. and also wrath. (laughs) I love the fluidity of that. There's like a fluidity of that. And then it just taps into, this is how I need to show up as a being right now based on what is in front of me and what it is that I need to do. Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of like, oh, right. And and what is that energy behind that? Again, centering things. This is something I learned in my Buddhist chaplaincy was, what's your North Star? And the North Star is, what do you stand for? Because like, it's so easy to say like, oh, I hate this, or I'm against that, or that's wrong, or that's bad. But it's like, but what do you stand for? When I think of protector deities, it's maybe really cheesy, but in Star Wars, there's that scene right at the very end where Finn's going to just like kill himself and Mm -hmm. Rose saves him. Mm -hmm. And she says like, we don't win by killing what we hate. We win by protecting what we love. And the point is he would have just died. He would just burned up and like they wouldn't have cared and would have made no difference. And it would have made a massive difference to the people who loved him. So it's like, it's that, right? It's like, this is why existence is resistance. Just existing in a world that doesn't want you to be there. And I was like, that's that fierce protector. How do I show up to protect? How do I show up 
to protect what I love, which is the sacredness of every single precious human being. We have not yet talked about embroidery and sacred loves and sacred lives. I mean, I'll go in. Yeah, sacred loves, sacred lives. So a big part of my practice that I'm not very good at is remembering to include myself in all that compassion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. I always remember Rev Angel saying once, we need to include ourselves in our liberation yeah. work. Compassion for all beings, but not me because I'm a hot mess. Um, <laughs> So Sacred Love, Sacred Lives is something I basically, I started it last year because I was so angry and sad. It's really, really hard watching the people I love being attacked by bigots and conservatives who would rather they not exist in public. It's really, really hard knowing that like I have reached a point in my life where I'm relatively comfortable in my own skin again and feel really content. And also now it's scary to go out when I say, have a fresh, very short haircut. And I don't know if someone's going to yell at me because how very dare I not perform gender according to their rules. So it was getting really upsetting and really hard for me. And I was thinking about this whole, like, yeah, protect what you love instead of always attacking what you hate. And I just, there's like a long story. I've actually written about it in my blog, a whole thing about listening to a podcast and someone talking about disabled love is sacred. And I was like, yeah, we're living at a time where people seem casually very comfortable with eugenics again. <laughs> it's kind of mm-hmm. it's frightening. weird. It's really weird. And like disabled people are anywhere from 40 to 50% of the population at any given time. All of us are only temporarily able it doesn't suck to be disabled. It sucks to live under ableism. It doesn't suck to be black. It sucks to live under white supremacy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't suck to be queer or trans. It sucks to live under cis heteronormativity. So I started these mixed media embroidery pieces because stabbing stuff a whole bunch is really therapeutic. (laughs) Bring my wrathful Dakini energy into it. And what's really fun about them is that I also then reach out to other artists whose work, like they do line drawings and their work would translate well into embroidery. So I've been doing a series of them. I've decided to do 108 because Buddhist and (laughs) I'm doing a bunch of my own designs. And then I'll ask other artists if I can use their designs and if they give me permission to, then I make the piece and then I post it back to them, which is really fun because it's like spreading this joy. It's Mm -hmm. spreading this. And right now it's just, I'm just doing it for funsies. I'm just doing it to remind myself I am a precious child of the universe. There's lots of us out there. We're all really great and making art that celebrates this community that I've found so much belonging and care in and then being able to share that out with other artists. Mm -hmm. It's quite fun and it's good for my mental health. And it's amazing and it's beautiful. I will be sharing all of that in the show notes so people, everyone can take a look. Maybe this is a good question to kind of round the corner towards the end here. Tell me about public dancing. (laughs) Oh, that's a throwback. (laughs) That's a fun throwback. Okay. I mean, I've already given you my wonderful childhood story. And I was a kid, like, you know how in the 90s, dance like no one's watching was like the live, laugh, love of the time. Mm -hmm, (laughs) Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
like when I was a kid and I heard that, I was like, yeah, that's me. I dance like <laughs> no one's watching. Which like what kid doesn't, honestly? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, I as an adult, I was like, it's some bullshit that people don't just dance in public. Like little kids, they'll just they'll just dance to anything and they have fun and they just they're not thinking about whether or not people are looking at them or not. They mm-hmm. don't care. Or if they do, they're like, good, someone's looking at me at right. the audience. <laughs> So I have done public dancing at various times (laughs) for different reasons. I've usually done it to like promote books that I've self-published that I feel weird about now. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole other story. I like doing it. I like that it charms people. I also am charmed when I see fellow public dancers. I love it. And I just wanted to mention it because I saw one of the clips and I will tell you, you're right. Charmed is the right word, but it just, it was so joyful. And it reminded me that we so often don't encounter people allowing themselves to just be and be present and to have fun without all this extra, at least that's what comes across what I saw. It was just a gift in that in the moment when I saw it. Yeah, I would say actually just, just to add like a nice little a little nugget on that too is I think that joy is so important and noticing joy and cultivating joy and like being really intentional about joyfulness. And I have to share all my immense gratitude for that with Adrienne Marie Brown in her book, Pleasure Activism. When I read Pleasure Activism, it helped me reframe. So I was thinking like as Buddhists, right? We're always like, how do we alleviate suffering? And I was like, well, how do we create joy? Like, right. <laughs> that's a more mm-hmm. fun question. Because otherwise it can be really easy to get really heavy. And is there anything else you would like to voice out into this space here that maybe we haven't touched on yet? (laughs) I mean, this is why I hate when people ask what I do, because it's like, oh, there's just so many other things. But no, I think we're good. (laughs) We're good. Thank you so much for having me. This was delightful. This has been amazing. I'm excited to see what unfolds from the continuing practice and the project that you're working on and all the projects that you're working on. (laughs) Not singular, multiple and complex and all interconnected. Thank you for sharing. Karma Ratna. Karma Ratna. That's that's me. Anyone who knows my my Buddha families will know what I'm talking about. I'll have to Google it. (laughs) (laughs) Karma, action, Ratna, abundance. (laughs) Amazing. You are living in this and you're being it. I'm thankful that you're doing all of this practice and offering it out into the world and being who you are and existing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Choosing to Create podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find this episode's show notes and transcript on our website, choosingtocreate.com, and stay up to date and connect with us on Instagram at choosingtocreate.com.